Before we start The King's Chamber Part 2, I'd just like to put out a relatively humble request. If you like what we're doing here on the Post Relevant Podcast and you'd like to support the show, please go on over to patreon.com forward slash post relevant and donate to the show. I really enjoy making the show and I'd like to continue and do more. I have a lot of cool ideas for the future, but in lieu of advertising, I don't know. It's kind of tricky in this day and age. So yeah, if you consider it, please go on over to patreon.com forward slash post relevant and donate. You'll be supporting a unique artistic vision. And look, it's either that or I'm going to have to start reading copy for mattresses and nicotine pills. So eh, actually, that's still on the table no matter what. That's patreon.com forward slash post relevant. And hey, thank you in advance. Okay. Honestly, I truly appreciate it. And with that said, join me as we enter. something something okay great cool um and i'm assuming your level is probably fine i i'm not sure but uh i don't tell me if it seems like it's it sounds amazing uh, awesome awesome and and the um the uh uh the waveforms are similar in size to mine so that probably means that you're not like your microphone is good so it's not just peaking Right, it's uh, not spiking. Yeah, so this is good because spiking. now I can say really inane, stupid things extremely clearly, which is for example. For example, uh, <laughs> well, say something I, stupid. Come on. What I was just saying was was like kind of stupid. But, um, uh, hey, you're freezing up now. Sorry, sorry. What you just want me to say anything stupid? <laughs> yes. The stupider, the better. The stupider, the better. I, I'm, I'm just thinking, um, uh, chim- I just, I'm thinking like ch- about chimichangas. Chimichangas. Think about Did Mexican you eat before foods. you got on? I had an egg sandwich. I also had an egg sandwich. I have a um, obsession with egg sandwiches. I've been you had a better about- one than me, is what you're saying. Your egg sandwich was I better. I sort of like put a lot of love and care into them. I, I've been thinking about getting like a, an egg sandwich tattoo like a deconstructed egg sandwich on my bicep with like the toast kind of like deconstructed like like the toast floating off in the bottom and the ingredients like kind of clearly clearly sort of stacked on top of each other the little egg patty little bacon wow. a little bit of uh, lettuce some sauce sauce on the bread i think that's this is the, the only tattoo idea i've ever had i'm considering getting the words gun show tattooed on my penis. <laughs> Does that sound like a good idea? I don't no, I don't think so. I no. Think that's... Would you sincerely get an egg sandwich tattooed on your bicep? I'm thinking about it, but I haven't ah. like done anything to make that happen. Like draw, had anyone draw the tattoo or talk to a tattooer or anything like that. You have to develop your bicep first. 
there's that too. I haven't done that. I yeah. haven't done that at all. Aren't you, aren't you like a rock climber? Don't you have giant arms from being from doing rock climbing shit? I've I um I did go this morning before this thing, but mm-hmm. uh I've, I haven't gone as much as um I used to. I used to go three times a week. Now wow. Now I'm down to like once a month or something. Like that. Oh, that's way less. Yes. Far less impressive. Far Remember less my impressive. buddy Justin from LA? Uh, what did he look like? He was a, a swarthy Italian guy. Okay, okay. Was he Maybe one of the guys? Maybe never met him. Was he one of the guys who moved from Vermont? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah I remember him. Okay. He he was a like a working uh, like uh, post production guy. He was he worked on big shows in LA. He got really into after I left LA. He got really into going to the rock climbing place and he got all jacked yeah it's a rock climbing gym's kind of fun he got in great shape though he lost weight and his arms were all like jacked up and yeah i stopped because i was putting in so much work and the amount of improvement was so minuscule like incrementally <laughs> minuscule that I, I was like i was like i went on like a diet so i could lose like five pounds so it would be easier yeah. to pull myself up the wall and, and it made me like you got fatter. just a tiny bit better, you know, like it, and I was, yeah. it was just like the amount of effort I was putting in was not creating a lot of output. So, so Weird. I just was like, screw this. I'm going to drink beer and eat burritos. Yeah. Fuck the world. Yeah. Fuck that. I was just hearing that, um, that the Aztecs, uh, when they sacrifice people would pull out their hearts with the tortilla. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you don't want to get heart stuff on your fingers. No, and maybe it's so you can eat it right away, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, just pop it. Just scarf it down. Get that heart. Eat it. You don't want to get eat it too fast. You get heartburn. The other thing. guys. You give the other guy heartburn, heartburn. Yeah, well, he's got heart none. He's got heart none. Heart. <laughs> uh... Um, everything going all right with you, bro? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I actually have a little bit of a beef. I've, I heard that you've been talking about me behind my back. Did you hear? Did you hear the last episode? I did. You, I bet you didn't think that I was going to hear it. But you, Oh, no, I you... assumed. You, I, I, I was assuming because you knew you were going to be on soon that you probably would listen to it. I, I, I think you were talking about me behind my back and you're like, there's no way he'll ever find out. But then you messed up, Phil, and you recorded it. And then you put it on the top of the episode. But that just right means I start. wasn't talking behind your back. I was talking so that knowing that you're going to hear it. So uh-huh. I'm show, I'm revealing my cards to you. Uh-huh. No, this is you slipped up, man. You slipped up. I don't care. You caught me I ca- slipping. I caught you. You slipped up and I caught you. You are busted. What's going to happen now? I don't know, man. Uh, but, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Is it a bro down throw down? It's a bro down throw down. You're lucky I'm not there, really. Because what would you do? Give me a big hug? Uh, it would be, I, I, you know, now, now I can only verbally, you know, harangue you. But uh, if I was there be like a you know like i could do like a suplex yeah wrestling. you can give me some lemon harangue i could give you lemon harangue i could put you on the you know you know the guy when the in the wrestling ring when they get up on the crossbar and they hold the guy up in the corner and they do the body slam from the top rope they get up on the the the, uh, the 
I want to say swashbuckles, but it's not that. It's the uh, it's something turnbuckle. 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 Yeah, bro. Nice work. You're gonna body slam me off the top buckle? I maybe. I don't know. It depends on how badly this escalates from here. Shit. It's a superplex off the top the top rope. That's a superplex. You know when they they take the guy and like they'll punch him in the stomach a couple times and then the guy will agree to step on the top rope with them. Right. <laughs> and then they'll throw them over their heads backwards onto the... That's a superplex. I like in wrestling how they agree to get, like, hurt by the other, well, if the you, other If person. you're holding the guy by his hair and you bring him yeah. over to the turnbuckle, then he has to... He has no choice but to climb up on top of the turnbuckle with you. I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, but it's a, there's a lot of agreeing to be hurt <laughs> in wrestling. There's also, it's just like comedy. It's all done in threes. So if, you, if you're getting, like, if you're beating up a guy and uh, they're trying to stop you, if they punch you three times, that'll derail your momentum. It's all in threes. Wrestling is, and they call... They call, uh, I know way too much about wrestling. If, if the scenario is fake, they call it a work, which, uh, you know, harkens to like uh, witchcraft or work and like a magical working. And if, they, if it's happening for real in the ring, then they call it a shoot. I've never heard this before. Why do you know, why do you know so much about wrestling? Because I, I love wrestling. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. I love it. I'm really into AEW, uh, all elite wrestling. That's the really good wrestling uh, show right now. Where they get a lot of, like, awesome wrestlers and, like, a lot of indie wrestlers and a lot of wrestlers who, like, used to to fight in Japan where all the hardcore, like, the real... The real brutal athletic wrestling happens. Japan's not really well known for their wrestling. So. That's crazy. When did this? When did this start? When did this obsession start? I've been. You know, I used to watch wrestling when I was little, and I always liked it because it was sort of like superheroes, but like superheroes on crack. Right. So it's sort of like it's like you know because they're doing all these tricks and they're doing all these really athletic weird things. So and they're acting crazy and dressed all funny. So they're kind of like superheroes, but there's something very demented and off about the whole thing. And so it's disgusting. And that that is appealing. <laughs> the horribleness of it is very appealing. I, I, I never got into it, but I, I did enjoy like the macho man. You know, then they give the speeches to the camera yeah, to, the to like their man. opponent. Like yeah, macho man's man. speeches were always, incre- always incredible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and whatever happened to that guy? He's dead. He was uh, in Spider-Man. He was Bonesaw in Spider-Man. Was he? (laughs) I got you in here for three minutes! (laughs) Was that the original Spider-Man? Well, because you know from the Spider-Man number one, the comic book, he becomes Spider-Man so that he can wrestle to make some money. Right, right, right. So they do that scene. They the do beginning. that in the first in the right. in the first Sam Raimi Spider Man and it's uh, it's Macho Man, but he's Bone Saw. <laughs> That's awesome. Andy and I are always quoting Bone Saw because he goes, "Bone Saw is ready." <laughs> he's That's so awesome. weird. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's good stuff. I love Macho Man. He's one of my all-time faves, man. Like when I was a kid, he was my favorite wrestler, because he's. 
He feels like he's on like extra loads of cocaine. <laughs> right, he's done so like, much. <laughs> a lot of the new wrestlers, they're all like in good shape and they're not all on drugs and stuff. But way back in the day, they're all like drunk and on cocaine and you know what I mean? Like on what, and steroids, they're on like everything. Well, that's what I'm, I'm like, how do you recover from that? Like, how do you replace the Macho Man? What do you mean, re- replace him? There's no replacing him. What do you mean? I know, but what, it, what does wrestling even do? They, they've already, it's like they've already peaked. They peaked in like 1989 or something like that. And now, well, some left? people think that, but I don't, I don't consider it. I mean, it just changes. It goes through phases like every other art form. I guess so. I, I think it's I, really amazing. I, if you get a chance, check out AEW. It's really, uh, it's the best stuff on American TV. It's better than, than the WWE. Well, yeah, except that now uh, Vince McMahon, who is the guy who started WWE, he has been under scandals for um, for sleeping with uh, women that work for him and then paying them off privately millions of dollars of company money. <laughs> and it's all come out now, so he's had to finally retire. I think so I he's saw been that. just fucking the business for the last 20 years and literally and figuratively <laughs> and just ruining wrestling. <laughs> And so they finally got all these scandals on him and he had to retire. So now WWE might get better. We'll see. Well, do you remember that when I was a kid, it was WWF. And yeah. then they got sued by the World Wildlife Federation. Yeah. And then yeah. they had to change. And somehow WWE. that worked. <laughs> I'm fascinated that the other place, I mean, they must have had it first, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, wrestling is just filled with carnies and shady businessmen and right you know what i mean it's just lewd and lascivious and that is fun lewd and That's lascivious fun. is fun that is correct yeah that is correct ding, 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 ding. that is correct <laughs> all right so uh I, I i think maybe we've uh i don't know i'm just trying to think if we have any is there any other fun things to talk about before we start the show well what, what have you been what have you been up to yeah, just a lot of suffering in this hellhole that is New York City. <laughs> I hate this place. I want to get out of here. It sucks, especially in the summer. It's just too hot. It's too hot. Yeah. yeah. We had a we had a really hot week here. We had a week over ninety, and I did. Um, I in have Portland, no, Oregon. Yeah. Wow. I have no AC, so I had to do the. Oh. Um, I rode the river. I, I have a stand-up paddleboard. Uh huh. I took it took it on the river. Well, is this you know, a euphemism for something? It's just, you know, Phil, I had a stand-up paddleboard. Yeah, and you, and quote, wink, rode wink, the river. And I took it on the, the river. Yeah, wink, end quote. Wink. Wink, wink. Is your wife a gawa? Okay, so you went paddleboarding? Yeah, so I did that three Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I didn't do I didn't do nice. any work basically, and then nice. Saturday we had a. It still it wasn't getting colder, but I had already had planned a barbecue uh, mm. with my friend Zach and invited all my friends. So we were just like, screw it, we're having the barbecue. And so I was outside smoking ribs for five hours in that ninety degree heat. Is smoking ribs a euphemism? <laughs> yeah, smoking ribs. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> so you're smoking ribs for five hours out in the 90s? Out in the 90-degree, 90 95-degree nice. heat. It was 97, Ooh. actually. It was the hot, turned out to be the hottest day of the 
thing, but we um, we set up a kiddie pool and filled it up with water so people could stick their feet in it. Nice. You know, so we were serving ribs and it was coming out. Um, um, uh, my girlfriend made uh, arepas, which are like corn, masa corn, sort of like tortillas that are thicker. And you, we made like rib, ribby arepas. So we, we carved the rib meat off the bone and put it on the arepa and served wow. it. And it was, it was pretty good. It was really good. And then now um, who's the Aztec cannibal? That's right. That's right. And then, yeah, we put human hearts. We, we mixed human hearts. <laughs> in there uh, on the arepas on the arepas we smoked human hearts for five hours in the 90 degree heat and now uh, is that a euphemism wink wink <laughs> <laughs> it just means like that you were playing like shoots and ladders <laughs> it's very it means we did our homework and turned it into right fun. oh but, wow well that's cool Wait, is it is 90 over 90 is that unusual for portland for a solid week, it's unusual, but not every once in a while. That's not that crazy, but for a week straight, it was pretty unusual. Wow, man. But Far we out. had the um, the coolest thing that happened, though, was so there's a there's a venue next door to my house, and they were had this sort of psych rock band playing. Hmm. Uh, we were sort of like, people were wandering outside to hear the psych rock, and, you know, it was the, the day. Portland has this World Naked Bike Ride event every year. And it's the biggest <laughs> naked bike ride in the world. Have you participated? I've never actually participated, but we were mm. we were hanging out outside, trying to listen to the you know the psych rock, and then this naked bike ride just rut comes by, and it's awesome. So it's like they're they're playing like psych rock, and then just naked people riding their bikes by, and it's the biggest one in the world. So it took like an hour for. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just sitting there Holy for an hour shit. hooting and hollering at all the naked people and they're awesome you know they're all they, they have like uh, some of them have like weird face paint all of them have like uh-huh. neon LED stuff going on there's like naked roller skaters you know there's dudes every dudes have like speakers attached to their to their bikes you know and it's all kinds of people you know the old people you know like uh, all kinds like all shapes and sizes and stuff like that and they're all like dancing on their bike because they're riding by with the and there's this dude's just like the, the the band like came out the door and was like rocking in the street like playing like crazy guitar solos while like these people like were riding by for like an hour and it was just like a, a really cool really cool <laughs> night <laughs> that's what you wrote in your diary it was really cool it was really cool Nate wink 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 yeah um dude that was that story is perfect and will it, it it slides perfectly into the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today so i think i'm just going to start the show sure sure how, how right. does it yeah, um, absolutely and you're wearing clothes right i am I mean, but you don't have to be but well i actually was i'm a little hot right now so i'm going to take off my like can, do you mind if i just take off a layer really quick only if you put on another hat okay okay hang on just hang on a second i'll, I'll do both are those. you serious yeah absolutely hang on you are serious. I am. I am. Damn. Is there a bird? Is your window open? Is there a bird whistling in the background? Well, the street is out there. Yeah. Can you hear it? Yeah. Should I shut? Should I shut the window? You might as well. I mean, I can still hear the bird. What do you? No, there's no bird, man. I'm flipping I'm you. Beep, I'm flipping beep, the bird. Beep, beep. Oh, okay. Here we go. Three, seven, twenty-nine! You're listening to the most relevant podcast, a podcast for the end of the end of time, with your host, Phil 
In the beginning was darkness, and an ocean of chaos. From the darkness and chaos emerged a mound, and on it rose the sun, Ra, followed by the Bennu bird, the phoenix, whose cries set the world in motion. Welcome to the King's Chamber, Part 2. Chapter 1, The Story of Ptah. Have you ever wondered what the Academy Award statuette, otherwise known as the Oscar, really symbolizes? According to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the statuette, designed by MGM art director Cedric Gibbons, represents a knight standing on a reel of film and gripping a crusader's sword. But if you do even a slightly cursory amount of research on the internet, You'll soon find that the stance of the statuette exactly resembles the statue of the Egyptian god, Ptah. And here is his story. Ptah is the demiurge of Memphis, the god of craftsmen and architects. Ptah existed before all other things and brought the world into existence through the creative power of speech. Ptah crafted the world in the shape of his heart, and he gave life to all the gods through his heart and his tongue. Ptah is the begetter of the first beginning, the lord of truth, the lord of eternity, the listener of prayers, the master of ceremonies, the master of justice, and the god who made himself to be god. Ptah is depicted as a man with green skin, wearing the divine beard, and holding a scepter with three symbols, the three creative powers of God. Those powers are as follows. Number one, the wasp scepter, which represents power. Number two, the ankh, which is the sign of life. And number three, the jed pillar, which represents stability. Hey, uh, I've got Andy on the line for a Hi. brief update to something that I realized from episode 18, The King's Chamber Part 1. Hey, Andy. Yeah. Hey, hey. How's it going? Good. So would you, would you call this The King's Chamber Plot? Yes. This is where he takes a dump into, okay. into everyone's brains. Yeah, you're doing an info dump. That's right. I totally am. This is the king's chamber, yeah, uh, chamber closet, his water closet. I don't fucking know. <laughs> um, just for the, just for everyone, uh, what's the name of your kid? Do you want to tell us? Rowan. Rowan, nice. Congratulations. Rowan Ellery Ristino. Wow. Yeah. What does it mean? Do you know? Uh, Rowan. I think it means like the riders yeah. of Rowan. Yeah, no, not Rohan. Oh. Although I, I almost got Anna to be okay with Elric. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Do you know what that's from? Elric, uh, the magician, isn't it a oh. comic? Oh, yeah, but that's based on Elric of Melonborn. Yeah. Which is a fantasy novel series. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
But I've never read that shit, so I don't know much yeah. about it. But I just remember Dave Sim doing the. Yeah, yeah, he made fun of them. Yeah, yeah. But Anna liked that name, so Alan got that in. She liked it, or she didn't like it. No, she liked the name. It was in our. It made it to not quite the final round, but it made it for a middle name. Though, not ah, for a... That's a great. That would have been an awesome middle name. You couldn't get it in there, though, huh? Nah, it's all right. And uh, Willoughby, I was... I know, she did not like Willoughby, nor did our mother. Ah, crime. My mom was like, oh, I pray to God that you can choose Willoughby. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, God won, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So Rowan Ellery? Yeah, Ellery. Nice, congrats, man. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so that happened, and... That's a development from the uh, last episode. And uh, also, uh, okay, so the reason I wanted to have you on real quick, this episode is the King's Chamber Part 2. In about an hour, I'm going to be interviewing Brother Mark. He's like my white whale for this podcast. Finally going to get him on the line. That's very cool. But I just wanted to talk about one thing that I realized from our last conversation, which was about what the dog biscuits are. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, just like everything else, I kind of have like a couple things that sort of circle around it. I think I understand what's going on in that moment. Uh, It's pretty basic, but it kind of reminded me of a couple things. It sort of reminds me of, because you mentioned, you asked me, you were like, do you think it's kind of like them weighing his soul? You know what I mean? Uh, like that yeah, whole thing. Yeah, I mentioned that. Yeah, yeah you mentioned it. And I, uh, and I was like, I don't know. And I was thinking about it. And I think you're kind of right. Okay. It is kind of, I mean, in some ways, the dog biscuits look a little bit like like the feather, you know, from the right. like Egyptian hieroglyphs, that whole idea of like your soul has to weigh like a feather so you can go on to the afterlife. Right. So it's kind of that thing, and especially because I'm going to go further into the idea that the homeless king is Osiris. So oh. this episode, I'm going to talk a lot about that. Nice. Yeah, so, and he's definitely like the, the ruler of the underworld, you know, the afterlife, essentially. Right. So that makes sense in terms of your idea. I also, I, I thought one and one potential analogy is that it's sort of like the two pennies that you have to give Charon to cross uh, the river Styx to go to the realm of the dead. Right. It's like two, you know, two bones, two pennies. Right. So that's kind of a symbolic similarity there right and so and i feel like both of those ideas are 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 like in the they're sort of like swimming in the same pond you know right but then the third thing that i think really clarifies the idea is that it's the weight that he's carrying around sure the the dog biscuits are symbolic of this weight that he's been carrying around the whole time right it's him hanging on to the ex-girlfriend and right wanting to get back together with her hoping that something like that happens to him and it's the symbol of why he follows Sarah you know right. he's got the dog biscuit and he feeds her dog one of them it's like his the symbol of his past or the thing he's still hanging on to or the weight that he's still carrying around and in that scene the homeless king he takes the dog biscuits and he asks about them and then he puts them in his pocket Right. And there's that shot of the dog biscuits in his hand that's kind of like the way Frodo is always revealing the ring of power in right. the, the Hobbit yeah. movies, or the, I mean, the Lord of the Rings, where it's just like obviously displayed, so it's very important to see. Right. But yeah, the homeless king takes it and asks about it and keeps it. 
Right. So in the same way, in that same way, it, it's like a sacrifice that Sam has to make in that scene sure. so he can move on. So the homeless right. king he takes, takes the pain away. Yeah, he judges him and he takes away the past. Right. So that Sam's soul will be lighter so he can move on. Nice. Yeah, so that's why the biscuits are there, sort of like it's his sacrifice or it's an offering that he makes to the god of the underworld so that he can move on. So if he doesn't do that, then he probably gets murdered in that room. But instead, right. the homeless king, you know, confronts him about it. He tells the truth and the homeless king passes judgment and removes the burden of the past of his attachment to the ex-girlfriend and that whole part of his life. And so once he right. leaves, he sees the billboard and it shows that things have changed. Right. So he's released he's released his past. He's made the sacrifice to let go of the past and the homeless right. king has passed judgment and allowed him to do that. And so that's yeah, nice. what I think is happening there. Yeah. Does this sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah, because yeah. I, I was like, I didn't think we totally nailed it, and I was like, oh, he keeps the bone, he keeps the dog biscuits. Yeah. Yeah, so... Give us your bones. Yeah, give us your bones. We want your bones. So, yeah, that was it. I just thought, oh, that kind of clears it up. Like, he's paid, he's paid the piper. He's paid his right. price to move on to the next life. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. I just wanted to say that while it was still on my mind. Cool. Yeah, and I thought it'd be cool to include that with this whole thing and just have a, like a little brief bit of you on this episode. Yeah. Yeah. You have anything to say about that? No, that sounds good. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm just putting you on the spot, but... Um, no, I mean, I, I'm on little sleep, so... Yeah. No problem. So give us your bones, Andy. Oh, yeah. The bones are their money. Yeah, man. He's paying the... The, the, uh... The boatman? The ferryman. Yeah. Boatman! Oh, boatman! He's paid the ferryman, and now he gets to cross yeah. over. Yeah. All right, cool. Thanks, man. Um... All right, goodbye! Goodbye! I will, okay. Adios! And, yeah, and that... So, and that's you handing over to Mark. Labor. Labor. Welcome to the Post-Relevant Podcast. We're back with a new episode of the show. I'm your host, Phil Restino. Hopefully this is at least the second time I've introduced the show on this episode. Every segment, Mark, I, I reintroduce the show for some I've reason. I've noticed that. Why. I've noticed yeah, that. Yeah, there's I, lots of introducing, but I, I, I like appreciate it. it. Yeah, it's funny. It's only marginally funny, but that's what I that's what I trade in is marginally funny stuff. So mediocrity, that's what I'm hitting, trying to hit, you know, level. We are bringing mediocrity at a very clear volume with a, with a well-produced mediocrity. <laughs> a decently, a relatively well-produced, let's call it that. But extremely clear, though. Yeah, Easy, easy clear to enough. hear the mediocrity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that voice that you hear talking to me right now on the show is my personal great white whale for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get him on the show. It took me a long time, but it's fucking finally happening now. Uh, happening. Just 
Just like the Native Americans say, you're supposed to talk about things in the present tense. So it's happening. It's happening. I am happening. It is the one, the only, the youngest member of the Rostino clan and definitely the longest-nosed member of the Rostino clan and also probably the most handsome. I would say the one and only... Mark Ristino! Welcome to the Post Relevant Podcast, Mark! Oh, that is... I'm going to need you to introduce me just generally <laughs> in life more often to that people. That was good? Yeah, yeah. I, oh. I, you know, who doesn't love a hype man before? Oh, I'd be your hobby, your Flavor Flav. Yeah. Yeah, boy! Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, and you know what, Phil? You seem mm. to, you know, uh, uh, imply that it was all you know one-sided affair but i seem to remember you rescheduling more than once i think i canceled on you once at least yeah canceled and rescheduled and then canceled so it was all my fault well you know life is a two-way street except for when you're on a one-way street bro right bro right yes well exactly did you get quieter? Are you further away from your mic than you were before? Uh, I can, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, when I talk, I sort of flail around a lot. So if I, okay, that's better. If I happen to flail away from the mic, just, just let me know and I'll, and I'll try and flail. Closer. Okay. Yeah. You know, if you're like six inches to like nine inches away from the mic, that's probably good. I think I'm at, I'm at like four, a good four inches right now. Okay. Well, it sounds pretty good. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Awesome. Is this so, a, this is also a euphemism, <laughs> euphemism or no? Yeah, it's a euphemism. <laughs> is this a euphemism? Yeah. I brought Mark on the show. Mark, you're going to be on The King's Chamber Part 2. Which is the old, the final episode, right? Of, uh, no, of the... no, it's the, it's the penultimate episode strictly about Under the Silver Lake. Right, right. Oh, I thought last but one was episode... the penultimate. Well, that was the penultimate decode episode. This episode, we won't really be doing decodes. We're just going to be talking. Okay. And right. I thought you were actually the perfect person probably to talk to about this subject matter because all the research that I've been doing has led me to sort of understanding that the mystery schools, which is... Okay, so my interpretation of Under the Silver Lake is essentially that the... The whole movie is about a mystery school. It's sort of about the the triple goddess, moon goddess, uh, Demeter, Persephone, Hecate, and the Dionysian mystery school traditions. That's essentially what the the movie's about. It's also I'm to the point now where uh, I'm kind of explaining that the the homeless king character in the movie is essentially Osiris, and so that's a mystery school as well. And they're all they all have to do with the afterlife and the underworld and all that stuff and so that these mystery schools the the probably the mystery element of the mystery schools is that essentially they're most likely using hallucinogens Mm. during their ceremonies to visit the afterlife so i wanted i thought you were going to be a good person to get on because you seem to know things about mushrooms and so i thought we could talk about mushrooms but what I'm realizing is that there's a lot of shit we can talk about because you have a lot of experience with like rock and roll, 
and you know being around music and music festivals and live shows and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you know you even have been to Burning Man which I think it definitely has a connection to all this I mean even the story you were telling in the intro is that there was a, an hour-long procession of naked people on bicycles in your neighborhood so right which is extremely Dionysian <laughs> yes, and um, it really is you know <laughs> so I want to talk about all these different things and you just seem like the perfect person to talk about them with and so that's where I'm at in terms of the research and the where what I'm prepared to talk about is this hallucinogen kind of thing and so it just is worked out so that you you, you should have you were destined to be on this episode is what I'm saying oh very cool I love it yeah I love it yeah it's just working out perfectly but I, I don't want to quite get into that quite yet I just want to shoot the shit a little bit more with you and You know, um, you're a guy that travels a lot. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love traveling. Yeah, and and so I wanted to talk about that with you a little bit. What's the last place you've been to where I know you've been off doing things recently? Yeah, yeah, I just came back from Canada. I was in um, uh, north of Vancouver, BC um, with my my girlfriend. Um, Humble brag. Humble brag. Wink, wink. You know what I mean. (laughs) And... Uh, we rented. We actually went up to uh, Squamish, BC, British Columbia, which is north of Vancouver on the coast. And we uh, yeah. we rented a, a cabin, sort of out in the middle of the woods. And like it was all this hand hand built cabin. It had like a live edge, you know, wood furnishings all over it and stuff like that. It was. Um, what does live edge mean? Live edge is like when you, you know, you sort of mill part of the wood but leave the edge as it is naturally and sort of build it into the into the furniture or into the furnishing or into the piece of the house or something like that so it has like a wood like it's unfinished it's not polished no it still has a finished feel but it has like a it looks like a natural tree that's been sort of transformed wow. so like let's say you took a, a tree trunk and you just cut a slice out of the middle of it and then sanded the top and bottom and finished it but you left the the bark, the rugged bark edge on it. That's like a live edge. Uh, that would be called a, a live edge wood furnishing. And then you made a table out of it or something, right? Then you put legs on the bottom. So it's still still a functional table. Are you like scraping your arm on the, the bark? Yeah, so we do. I, we actually had a live edge table in my living room for a while and we stopped because people kept stubbing their toe against it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're up in Canada with your girlfriend wink wink and you're at, you're hanging out in a live edge cabin yeah why were you up there what were you doing up there we um well it sort of is it sort of fits with your theme a little bit because we um hung out and um partook in some some mushrooms actually um really yes yes so we had a hallucinogenic trip in a cabin by the uh out in the wow. middle of the woods up in canada it was really cool yeah and the, this cabin was actually is actually really close to um, a monastery, like a nun, like a nunnery. And the yeah, the get monast- thee to one. Get get thee to a nunnery, and the monastery had set up. You know, uh, uh, there was a, a giant field down that road, and it had a sign that says, you know, this field is just for mammals and animals. You know, humans and animals, no driving cars and stuff like that. And they gotcha. had built a bench there, so there was this. Bench. A live edge bench. It was just a normal bench, but it was overlooking a meadow with flowers. That's 
was sort of like uh, set underneath a giant mountain, snow cut mountain, you know. And so we, um, you know, we wandered. We we, uh, we we took the mushrooms and wandered down to this field and sat on the bench and stared up at the stared at the clouds. And um, sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. Stared at the stared at the flowers. It was just like really, really perfect, mm. perfect wow. scenario for it. How long were you up there for? So we did uh, we did three days in the cabin, and then one day in Squamish, which is kind of like a cool climber town. There's like a okay. When you come in, there's a big granite wall as you drive into the town, kind of reminiscent of Yosemite. You know, like glaciated granite, smooth kind of granite surface. And then the ta- that's like kind of like looming over this this whole town. And the town has like, so there are like climbing routes in the town and they have like a, um, a little plaque that shows you where all the climbing routes are and all the climbers are like super well lab- labeled and stuff like that. And, yeah. And this this town is about, it's like halfway to Whistler. So if you were, if you, maybe people have heard of Whistler before, it's the biggest ski resort in the world. So this oh, wow, is really? like on the way to Whistler. So it's like, really out in the middle of nowhere like big 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 cascade mountains giant you know 13,000 foot mountains or maybe closer to 10,000 foot lots of snow there were bears everywhere um really did you see a bear no but we were in the town and the guy the the hotel we parked at the guy was like don't leave food in your car because there's a bear there's a bear that's been hanging around you know wow so so there's just bear. We didn't see one, but there are just bears. Like bears are just part of life, you know. How likely is a bear to go all Leonardo DiCaprio on you? So uh, it's not very likely, but uh-huh. when we had actually, we were tr- gonna do a hike into the mountains, and the ranger sent us an email saying that there was, they called it a denaturalized bear in the area, and that it wasn't a good idea to go up there. And so a denaturalized bear is like a bear that has gotten a taste for human for human things like human food and stuff oh. like that. So they'll come in and, and like wreck your wreck your shit, you know? Oh, and shit. uh so if there's there it's actually very, very rare to be in a bear attack. And um one good way to get into a bear attack is to go hang out in an area with with a denaturalized bear, you know. So that's Yeah, and you've got food and he's like, what do you got, bud? He's like, I know you have something on you. you yeah. Know? Pony up. Pony up. And those are, they have grizzly bears up there too. So it's like not just. So they're big motherfuckers? Those are the ones that you can't really. So with a black bear, they say you can just yell at it. You know, a black bear is like a giant dog, basically. It, like they're, uh-huh. they're, they're humongous. They're 400 pounds, you know, but. Oh, shit. But if you, black bear, it gets in your bag or something like that. Then what you're supposed to do is take 10 steps back and just yell as loud as you can at it. And, uh, it'll go away you know and I, I that actually happened to me once in this Sierra where I was yelling at a, a black bear that was going through my stuff and uh oh shit and I was going I was just going like hey get the fuck out of here you know just like screaming really loud at the bear and pointing and he was he was sort of like oh he's like oh why why are you yelling at me he's like oh <laughs> come on was he wearing a hat and a tie <laughs> yeah yeah He's like, you're mean, and then he like turned, he like turned around and left. <laughs> but the but that doesn't work with a grizzly bear. They don't. No. They know that you're not because with the black bear, you're supposed to put your arms up too and make yourself. Big. Yes. And yes. a grizzly bear will never confuse you for being bigger than it might be. Because it just knows it's bigger. It, it knows it's bigger. A grizzly bear is more like 800 to 1,000. Can you run away 
Is it possible to run away? No, they're faster than you. They can climb trees. So they're, they're, the grizzly bear is the one that you're supposed to play dead. Just like lie, you're supposed to lie down if they... Oh my God. Well, you're supposed to try and back away slowly, staring at it. And if they come up to you, you're supposed to just lie down and play dead. Uh, you know how like ghosts and things like that are scary? Mm-hmm. The idea of like a ghost is a scary thing for some reason. Sure. Do you think a wild animal is more scary than a ghost? I think so. Well, because the, it'll it'll literally tear you to pieces. Right, right. Well, I'm not trying. I don't want to like give bears a bad name because I think that they're really they really don't actually fuck with people too much. Right. And I think I remember saying, um, like in in the Sierra last year, they only had one bear attack in the whole year. Wow. And that bear attack was because the bear took some food from a guy and he tried to take the food back. You know. <laughs> Holy so he like shit, went up and tried to take it back. So it's just dummy. like he was just like a dumbass, you know. And yeah, it was like bear, like it's very oh rare for for rare for a bear to. I'd just be like, here, take everything I have, and I'm just going to go now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's the sensible thing, but like wild animals, I find potentially terrifying. I, I remember being, uh, where was I? Uh, Bryce Canyon, maybe. Well, hiking around by myself and I was hiking in this one area and all the like the burnt stumps all started to look like black bears <laughs> and then I came to a spot where there was a sign that said there are bears in this area and I was like oh my god <laughs> so I've been hallucinating bears because I subconsciously knew there were bears around and then I immediately turned around and it took a long time to get back to like an area where I couldn't potentially be killed by a bear. And just that idea that like maybe a bear is gonna show up any minute now and just tear me to shreds. Right, right. Uh, unpleasant. Why? Well, this is like one of those reasons why humans are afraid of the dark kind of thing, you know? It's just yeah. like, but the, this is, I also think it's, it's like one of those areas where your lizard brain actually isn't serving you because if you can like intellectualize, you know, being in the wilderness and just sort of, yeah. and, and and understand, you know, like you have a better chance of being hit by a car than being attacked right. by a bear, you know, then you can well, like kind of fall yeah. asleep in your tent, you know, but if you start imagining <laughs> things, things like walking around outside, you know, and yeah. listening for noises, then you kind of like, you're just kind of fucked, you can't fall asleep. By the way, have you ever had, I know you've been out in the wilderness a lot, have you ever had anything that resembled Bigfoot? Any sort of Bigfoot encounters, like uh, something throwing rocks at your tent or making weird noises or? <laughs> That's an awesome question, but I, I haven't. I wish I had, because I think, I, I don't feel the way that you do. I feel like really like, um, I'm like in awe of wild animals, you know, big animals. Yeah. And, hawks stuff like that and i i treat them with respect you know but i you're don't right, i have no respect for hawks <laughs> i know i know you do you're such <laughs> you call such me. an asshole to hawks <laughs> fuck you hawks <laughs> but but uh seriously though i think i do like if you if you treat them with respect like you don't encroach on their space and you don't try and throw rocks at them or provoke them right then they well, no, i'm not as scared of a hawk but i i don't think a hawk's gonna mess with me but a bear might well, destroy me or, no, but I or think like a that... cat a wild you know a, like a wild lion or something but like you, a i've walked lion? by a mountain lion before and we oh. looked at each other you know and i wasn't ah. i i was up on i was in yosemite i was up on hiking to yosemite falls and i turned the corner and there was a mountain lion right there you know wow. and we just walked by each other 
Wow. And we were looking at each other and I didn't make any sudden movements or anything like that. And we just sort of, it was like passing, yeah. you know, passing like a scary looking dude on the street. You know, you don't like. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. That's funny. Were you by yourself or were you with other humans? I, I was hiking with other humans, but they weren't like, I wasn't like close to them, you know? Uh and wow. uh, I've had bear encounters, you know, maybe a dozen bear encounters. And um, some of them where you're, you know, four, four or five feet away from them. And uh, it's the same sort of thing. You're just sort of like, you know, they're, you don't want to, the bear's thinking the same thing. Like, you know, all, I feel like all wild animals are like that, where they're like, all right, I'm going to tread a little carefully around this person, but I'm not going right. to do anything, but I'll be on alert. You know, they'll be on alert when a human comes around. And if, right. if you're just sort of like cautious and respectful, then right, they, they don't do Sometimes they're anything. a little just fucking crazy, right? Like there's some bears that are just insane. Sure, but those are bears that have been impacted by humans already. Oh, and not, okay. so not it's your like, fault. Well, it's our, it's our collective fault, not your right. specific fault. Right. And so, if a bear, but as like, it just as it eats your your liver, you you can you can apologize, you can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I'm so sorry for you killing me. Please forgive me as I bleed out. He's got the tortilla. <laughs> He's wrapping Putting your liver your in a tortilla. In the place where the first sun rose, stood a pillar, crowned with the holy Benben, the symbol for the first mound of creation. Around that pillar grew the holy city of Heliopolis, the sacred temple of the sun. Chapter 2. The Jed Pillar. The ancient Egyptians called Heliopolis Enu, which meant the city of the pillar. Pillar is represented by a tall obelisk with either a cross or a pyramid on the top of it. This same obelisk, an ancient Egyptian pillar with a cross on top of it, would later find its way into the center of the Vatican, the base of operations for the Catholic Church, the center of Christianity, the largest religion in the modern world. As the centerpiece of the Staff of Ptah, the Jed Pillar is depicted with many rings around the top of it. This is to show that the pillar is the backbone of Osiris and represents stability. Eventually in ancient Egypt, Ptah was combined with Osiris. Like Ptah, Osiris was depicted as having green skin. Also like Ptah, Osiris was depicted as being partially mummified. This is because Osiris was the god of the afterlife, the lord of the underworld, and the judge of the dead. Osiris was originally a fertility god, and his green skin symbolized the fertile mud of the Nile. Osiris's raising of the Jed Pillar ceremony is associated with the growing of grains. After Osiris was murdered, a great tree grew around his coffin. The king of Byblos liked the scent of the tree and had it brought to his palace, where it was fashioned into a pillar no one was aware that this pillar contained the body of Osiris. So maybe if we like slowly transition into the subject matter, 
Didn't you spend any time like in Mexico at like Aztec ruins or something like that? Where were you? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I've been to the Mayan ruins and Aztec ruins in Mexico. Weren't you famously at the one, well, it's not famous that you were there, but the one that's famously that image that people think is a guy and has like a spaceship? Yeah, the astronaut is in Palenque, which yeah. is a is a Mayan ruin site. It's in yeah. uh, Chiapas, Mexico. How big is the, the structure? Well, the site itself is one of the biggest preserved sites in the world. You know, everyone's heard, a lot of people have heard of um, some of the big Incan sites, uh, like uh, what's the what's the big the big Incan one that people go to in Peru? Teotihuacan. No, no, I think that's a I think that one might be in Mexico, but um, it doesn't really matter. That this site is like the second or third biggest intact ruin outside of some the of the Palenque site. Yeah, the Palenque site, but it's not it's not as well known. I don't think, at least as some of the some of the other ones, but it does have this um, really awesome. It's a relief carving so it's like a yeah. engraved onto a flat surface of a, a Mayan guy in a control room pointed skywards and he's like yeah control he's like moving controls and it's called yeah. the astronaut because he looks yeah. like he's an astronaut there's flying like fiery in plumes coming out of the bottom of the structure yeah 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 it's pretty it's an amazing piece of art no matter what it it actually is depicting it's just a straight up a beautiful piece of art on its own yeah. and then the fact that it's thousands of years old and like such bizarre subject matter yeah <laughs> uh, really weird and i think but i mean is... you could it, it could also be depicting you know someone on hallucinogens i find their art has a very hallucinogenic feel to it in general yeah yeah definitely that's an interesting I haven't really thought about that. I think that, I think that this specific engraving contributes to the idea that you know people seem seem to think that the Mayans left the planet, you know, because there's yeah. the, they have yeah. all these empty cities, you know, and no one yeah. really knows what happened. Yeah. Um, so I think I think this is this engraving is one of the reasons why people have such a strong connection between you know like UFOs and uh, aliens and, and Mayan ancient Mayan. But plus in South America and Central America, there's a lot of UFO sightings as well. So. Right, right. And there's the, the Nazca lines, right, which are mm -hmm. which are lines that are in the ground that make giant pictures that can only be seen from the air, you know? Yeah. Which is a weird thing to draw if you're not in the air. <laughs> oh, it's totally bizarre. Why would you do that? The only reason you do that is for the things that are flying above. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. What is the structure, though, the one in... Um, Palenque. What is the actual structure? I'm not sure. It's just like there's just like lots of buildings. So I'm not sure if I know the names of the structures or the layout of it. It's a bunch of buildings. Yeah, yeah. Saying. It's a site. It's an entire site. You know. So they. Um, so, and is it sort of like a sun moon kind of layout? You know how a lot of their structures are dedicated to the like have a have one structure that's dedicated to the sun and one that's dedicated to the moon and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is the size of a village, really. You know, so like. Okay. Uh, uh, but it's gigantic. You know, you can spend all day there. You walk in and out of uh, different buildings, and then you can, there's like a, a big sort of grassy mall, and you walk across it. And there's more buildings. There's artwork everywhere. It's an incredible, incredibly well designed, beautiful buildings. Like what beautiful churches, symmetrical of the design of the other sort of Mayan buildings, which are kind of like. Kind of pyramid-like, um, but more boxy than the pyramids are. 
Are they stepped buildings or are they just boxes? No, they're, yes, they're stepped buildings, yep. Yeah, so they're pyramid-esque or, uh, there's another name for that too, but I can't think of it right this second. Uh, trapezoidal, sort of. This says by 2005, the discovered area covered up to 2.5 kilometers. So one square wow. one square mile of buildings and stuff. Wow. So pretty big. Yeah, and you know, something we might, we might talk about today is the Egyptian pyramids, and they're often laid out in relation to the stars. And I, you got to imagine that probably some of those Aztec and Mayan ruins as well, our villages are like laid out with certain celestial features in mind. You know, I mean, not just the sun and the moon, but probably other stars as well. The layouts are related to what they're seeing in the sky. Yes, yeah, there was definitely, there was definitely something, I, I, I want to say there was some sort of a clock layout on this one. Mm. And uh, yeah, I re- they have like, like, they definitely have like this sort of uh, astrological geometry in the, the setup of the town, the layout of the town. Yeah, you got to imagine, like, you know, since they have this that this sort of profound calendar system, and that so their idea of time is really well developed, and and so that implies like an advanced astrological understanding as well, since that is pretty much how you measure time. You know, the relation to the movement of the stars over long periods of time and short periods of time, that kind of thing, and the idea that like some of those cultures just up and disappeared. You can wonder if maybe they figured out like, well, at this certain moment when this eclipse happens, there's some sort of dimensional door that's gonna open up like over by the temple of the sun. And so everybody go through there now and we'll go to the like dimension 5.3 or You know, maybe that's, they all just went through a door and disappeared, evolved somehow, I don't know. That would be the coolest sort of event of your life yeah. if that happened, you know? <laughs> like I kind of wish yeah. that happened to me. Where would you go? All right, so if that happened to you, you're, right, so let's say you're really good with time. You had an awesome watch, like a killer watch. This is the best watch you've ever had. You hang out with that guy, Mino Pelus. Do you know who that is? No, who's Mino Pelus? He was on some, I have regret bringing up his name now. He was on some sort of like late 70s, early 80s show where it's like him and this guy and they have stopwatches and they travel through space and time with the watches. Cool. But I can't remember what the name of the show is, and I really regret saying his name. I just always thought he had a weird name. It was like the guy from Emergencies. Name was Randolph Mantooth. Nice, nice. No, I've yeah, never, I've, I've never heard of this guy. So maybe I'll. Maybe I'll look yeah, him. look him up. Well, all right. So you've got a sick watch. It's killer. What would, what would be on your watch? What would your watch look like? What would be on it? Probably like. Yeah. Um, you know, I like the idea of having having a, a celestial objects on it. Or. Um, okay. It's so like an asteroid. Asteroids and like uh, stars, like galaxies. Yeah, and you can play asteroids on it. Yeah, yeah, and like fish, like fish, like uh, cool little, cool like weird under like deep sea creatures. Okay, and somehow that all combines to tell you the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But then if you configure it in a certain way, it shows you where the dimensional doorways are. And so one day you're just like, fuck all this shit. I'm tired of working. I'm even tired of seeing an hour-long parade of naked people on bicycles. I need something more. And it leads you to a dimensional doorway. You pass a mountain lion and a bear, and they're all like, all right, we'll come with you. And so you're the Tin Man in this scenario, I guess. (laughs) And so 
You get to the dimensional doorway, you step through, where does it lead you to? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, right? It's just hard, right? but this isn't this like the, how could you, if it's a dimensional doorway, right? Like, is it taking you to like a, another plane in this dimension? Like, well, this like is a, what I'm asking you, where, where does it lead like you to? The, you, you get to decide. I think it would be interesting to go into like the fifth dimension or so, you know, into like an okay. extra, you know, and then you couldn't ever explain it because it would be so mind blowing, you know, six, like a, like a, like a, cause you know, like you've got like this, there's a two, two dimensional like drawings and then three dimensions, <laughs> there's space. Like uh -huh. what is in the fourth dimension, you know, like what is the extra? The fourth dimension is time, right? It's time. Yeah, so fourth dimension is time, right? So that would be awesome, right? To be able to go mm -hmm. forward and back in time at will. That would be incredible. And then mm -hmm. what's the, what would it be the fifth dimension? Then? Like at, there's a point where our brains are too. Right. Well, remember when we went to uh, James Gilliland's uh, ranch at East Eddy at Mount yes, Adams? absolutely, yeah. And we saw the lights coming off of the mountain? Yes. He was talking about six-dimensional elves being in that mountain. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. What is that? What is a six-dimensional elf? Like, what's the... What state of consciousness do you exist in if you're six-dimension? I don't know. They sound really mischievous to me. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they're super awesome, you know, and they're just like radiating godhood and I mean even the word elf kind of comes from the word el which is like the Jewish word for god right right you know so it implies like a godliness to them yeah and that's in the the hobbit everyone loves the elves and the elves have so this sort of like heightenedness to them you know like a regalness like a godliness to them right right they seem they seem more than just human they're better but if we, so if we were just, if we we're ascribing back to that last question, question, if we we're like ascribing, so where to like, do you go? Where, if where we're ascribing go? to the theory of like multiverse, where there's just like other dimensions right. that are like ours but different, right? Yes. I feel like that sort of dimensional travel would be really dangerous, don't you think? Why? I, mean, I suppose it's all like fairly dangerous, but like you could just go to a dimension where like everyone's like a spider that's you know or like uh oh. everyone's like super everyone's a dick or like you know the nazis <laughs> won or you know like and it's yeah. hard to imagine a, a dimension it's easier to imagine dimensions where bad things are going on than it is to right because the, our brains <laughs> do that thing where we go towards the the survival instinct response before we go to like we're less familiar with love, feelings of peace and love, than we are with the survival instinct, fear, impulse. So your brain wants to like sabotage any good thing right. with the worst, worst case scenario, you know? But let's say you're able to hold the thought of a good place as the dimensional portal opens up because of your awesome watch. So you hold the thought and it takes you to a good place instead of just a shitty place where there are Nazi spiders uh -huh, uh -huh. trying to kill you. Um, where does it uh, where does it take you? What's the good place? I don't know if I would want to go to just one. I think I, what I would really want to do is just start sort of like mapping and cataloging the different okay. dimensions. I think that would right. that sort of would be my that would be where my zone is, you know, and just sort okay, of like I'm a, not putting a, you, I'm not limiting your ability to tra keep traveling. I'm just saying, initially, where's the first place you go? 
oh, well, what, what ends up being like the spot that you come back to? No, no, no. The first place you... Oh, okay. It could be... Yeah, it could which be your, is your favorite, Which is, becomes your favorite your favorite dimension. Yeah. Do, well, you know... It's like the pizza dimension. The pizza... Di- yeah, I don't think I would need... I think it would be more like... How about like a dimension where um, industrialization never happened? I think that would be like... Oh, really cool. Because yeah. imagine like the, just being back into the, a world of abundance, you know? Like that's... Yeah. Like the, I, I live in the Northwest and the... Um, the Oregon is, you know, Lewis and Clark, you know, traveled through there on their their adventures there. And it, when you read like their catalog, like their notes about their trip, like they just describe this insane abundance of life, you know, yeah. like that the Columbia River used to have the biggest salmon run in the world and it would be millions of salmon going down the river and they sit keep like like uh Lewis wrote that there were so many salmon jumping that it was cacophonous. It sounded like thunder, you know. And yeah. it was just like there, you could like walk across the river because there's so many salmon in it, you know. Like right. just, just sort of like crazy. I would love to be in a in a world of insane natural abundance. A world of salmon. Just salmon. No, no. Salmonton. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm like abundance of everything, you know. All of the tree before the abundance of the trees, you know, before before they were cut down. Of, of all sorts of wildlife, you know, just being able to see undisturbed sort of beauty of how things were before we started terraforming would be awesome. And I'll do you one better. I'll say it's also a dimension where the animals won't try to fucking kill you. Why not? Yeah, why not? They're good with everything, and so they're just chill. And it's like those videos where, like, the guy, he walks up to, like, a pride of lions and they just jump on him and they they he, he like scratches them and laughs you know like cuz they they always you see those videos online where like oh, yeah. some guy raised this group of lions but you don't know it until they then as they jump on him they just hug him right. instead of tear him right. limb from limb and you do people get dropped into like a pit full of puppies <laughs> of ra- of like man eating puppies, puppies. Yeah. that's the only thing you got to watch out for is the <laughs> Evil puppies groups, the gangs of evil puppies. Yeah. So I think that would be that would be my zone. That's my yeah. That would definitely be. I mean, I mean, I bet if I thought about it for longer, I could think of more stuff. But that's like. I know I put you on the spot, but I'm gonna give you three points for that answer. All right. Nice. Because there is something idealistic about it, and so I appreciate that. Thank you. of the sky knew it. Osiris's name means mighty or powerful. Osiris was also known as the Lord of Love, the King of the Living, the Eternal Lord, and the foremost of the Westerners, since the West is associated with the land of the dead. Chapter 3. Zep Tepi. The other children in Osiris's family were Isis, Set, Nephthys, and Horus the Elder. Osiris ruled as Lord of the Earth, marrying his sister Isis, making her his queen. To 
together they gave their people laws, culture, religious instruction, and agriculture. They established a kingdom of the golden age known as Zeptepi, which means the first time. Egypt was a paradise under their rule. But paradise was not to last, as Set became jealous of Osiris. He sent his wife, Nethys, disguised as Isis, to seduce Osiris, and she became pregnant with Anubis. Set created a beautiful coffin made to Osiris's height, and had a party where he told the guests, whomever could fit in the box could have it as a gift. When Osiris got into the coffin, Set slammed on the lid, fastened it shut, and threw it into the Nile. The coffin, carrying Osiris's body, traveled out to sea, eventually becoming lodged in a tree growing in Phoenicia. This is where the king of Byblos had the tree fashioned into a pillar in his palace. Isis, disguised as an old woman, arrived at Byblos and was invited by the royal handmaidens to the palace. She revealed herself as Isis, and the king and queen of Byblos promised her anything. Isis requested the pillar. Isis anointed the pillar in myrrh and wrapped it in linen. She brought it back to Egypt and hid it from Set in a swampy region of the Nile Delta. Isis decided to create a potion to bring Osiris back to life, and so she left the pillar with her sister Nephthys to guard it. But Set found Nephthys and made her tell him where the body was. Set cut Osiris's body up into 14 pieces and scattered the pieces across the land. I brought you on this episode so that we could talk about mushrooms and rock and roll and Burning Man, that kind of stuff. So I'm gonna reveal some stuff that I've been studying that's related to the movie. Oh, (laughs) let's talk about the movie Under the Silver Lake. So you've watched the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it three times, I think. Did we watch it with you at one point on the East Coast? When when I was visiting, you guys were, your obsession was just starting. Yeah, and you and Andy put it on. You were like, let's rewatch that movie. You had not started cracking the ciphers at that point, but you were thinking about them. There was like a- I think I was thinking like, maybe we should do a podcast about this movie. Right, right. And I feel like the first yeah. episode came up shortly shortly after that. Okay. And so you've seen it a couple times? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your initial, your initial thoughts on the film? What really sticks out to you? Or is there a scene that you really love? Or do you hate the movie? You think it's a fucking waste of time? that Andrew Garfield is a big, has a big stupid haircut. <laughs> no. hate his t-shirts. No, I'm a big, um, I, I love, I'm a big Andrew Garfield head. I've had Garf, I'm a Garf, He's great. I'm a Garf head. That's the, You're uh, a Garf head. Garf head. You're a Garfool. <laughs> and I feel like he's having like a resurgence and I wonder if it's oh, just something to do with uh, the uh, cult nature Spiderman. of this film or something like that. Well, he did like this movie and then he did a Spiderman and he did that, uh, what's that? Is that Tick, Tick, Boom? Is that the Oh, I haven't seen that movie one. Movie about the guy who did Rent. Yeah, is that like, good? He did like a bunch of like big, he did a bunch of movies that had an impact like all in a row. Well, he's really 
magnet, charismatic and magnetic. I think in a way that's under under uh, you don't realize until you start to watch watch him a little more I closely. Agree. You know, I agree because you see him in certain things like the early Spider-Man movies, and you're like, "This is a douchebag." <laughs> yes, exactly. Is he a douchebag? But then you see him in something like Under the Silver Lake, and you're like, oh, no, he's actually really doing special, interesting, subtle work all over that movie. And he's not like a classic, handsome guy. He's not like a Cary Grant, sort of. He's more, no. he's really more, he sort of slides under the radar in a lot of ways, and then, which makes, like, sort of, like, growing to appreciate him really um, more rewarding, I think. But he's not like a dweeb, like a Tobey Maguire kind of guy. No, no, he's way more charismatic than Tobey Maguire. Yeah, he's cooler than that, and it might just because he's tall. He's very tall. I, there's more to it though, because he's like, <laughs> he's, I, I, he, there's more to it than just the being tall. He's a yeah. he's a real sort of quiet storm of a guy, of an actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got a lot of character just built in there somehow. A quiet storm. That's a good phrase. So you saw the film, and he he struck you. That was the what you got. That's like that's the big what, thing that's that got what drew me into the film as like being okay. Um, on the second the second time I watched it, I was like, I really want to see Andrew Garfield do this performance again because I thought it was yeah. a really special. And I love you know the Big Lebowski, and I think that this is like a very dude esque role, you know, with him in LA slacker in LA sort of like yeah. wandering aimless but like also like with this larger than life personality you know um, mm. and so I like well it is a noir it. it's a noir based film just like Lebowski right is. right they're both right they're both detectives yeah but it's postmodern in the way that that they're sort of deconstructing the idea of the detective in LA by sort of taking the detective out of it. Yes, absolutely. The formula of like being, hi, I'm a detective is gone. Right, right, which is always the most contrived part of any detective story anyways, you know? Well, I mean, it's the way that you get to tell the story because he's the guy who has to go and figure out the stuff and have the adventures. So right. you get to follow him through the mystery. Right. And so, yeah, but yeah, I guess you're right. It's the most formulaic aspect of it. So they've taken that out. So now in, in like Lebowski, he's playing the role of the detective, but he's just total like ne'er-do-well or at least like a uh, just a stoner. It, it's weird to see him have any kind of momentum, really, although uh, Jeff Bridges really plays him with a lot of character. So you're you're. He, he displays a wider range of emotions than you think a character like that guy would have. Right, right. But then we get to Silver Lake and Andrew Garfield almost is, he's almost like a blank slate of a person. Right, right. You know? But he's also like, he's very sort of a modern era man though. Like there's like yes. a, there's like the, Boy man. an aimless, uh, yeah. the aimlessness of modernity is sort of like yeah. stamped on him one of the other things that I appreciate about the movie was that it just like its portrayal of modern LA is like the most I mean you lived in LA I used to go visit yeah. you the LA that I know is the LA that's in Under the that Silver movie. Lake you know and I don't Definitely. know any other kind of LA like that's the one that I know and somehow they got it 
like perfect. I've never seen another yeah. another movie do it like that. Yeah, and you know, I think like because the director is not a like a native of LA, I think that in the same way that maybe the director is coming from being an outsider who now lives in this community, that Sam has that same quality to him as well. Where Sam and Sam is the Andrew Garfield character. He, he's kind of the outsider plumbing the depths of the community and in, in, of the Silver Lake community. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it kind of comes from that interesting perspective of like, where you're an outsider in LA and you see it and it's just this weird, aimless, there's a blahness to everybody and you don't understand what they're motivated by or if they care about anything and it really captured that whole gestalt you know what yeah, i mean yeah. like that fucking like weird like amorphousness that it's, it's just nothing seems to matter there right right i don't know i there might be a better way to put it but i but i think that's what appealed to andy and i both off the bat we we're like yeah that is la He's not glamorized to LA one single bit, really. Like he's kind of showing sort of pointlessness of all the what the characters seem to be up to. Yeah. Well, in in my mind, LA is nothing matters, but it's a place where nothing matters, but anything can happen too. You know, like that. It's it's like America's biggest city. You know, like it, but it mm. it's not dense like New York. You know, so it's like. Yeah. Sp- all sort of sprawling and spread out in a way that you could never see all of LA. You know, you could never see it. It's too sprawling, you know? It's America's biggest city? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it's America's biggest city. No way! City. Holy shit, yeah. man, I didn't know that. Huh. Let me confirm that. I think that's true. That's correct. I'm going to say it's true, too. But that struck you about the film. What about what else about the film? Was there a certain scene that really got to you or other characters that you were really resonating with or that you hated or, you know what I mean? Like themes, something like that, peculiarness about the film. So I am looking this up. It did say New York is the biggest by, by a lot. Yeah, because Brooklyn is fucking yeah, humongous, yeah. man. Maybe Greater Huge. LA is bigger. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Queens is big too, but Brooklyn is one of the biggest cities actually in the country. Just Brooklyn, and that's a borough. Back to your question. Sorry. Uh, the uh, you know the first scene that really stood out to me, I think, is the one that stands out to everyone, which is with the, the songwriter. You know. Yeah. It's a very sort of head, literally head head exploding scene. <laughs> What about it? What about it do you find head exploding besides that he crushes the man's head? The idea that um, I think that's sort of like when the movie opens up, right? Where it's at first you're yeah. just sort of like he's, oh, he's just crazy or he's like got a, like a weird multiple like personality disorder or something like that. Yeah. But then it's like, yeah. oh, and then, but then he finds sort of like proof. This guy's like, yeah, I'm a, this, he's almost like a villain. He's like, the, I'm, I'm like the villain of, your life in a lot of ways he's like i wrote all these things and like oh the conspiracy is real and like i'm yeah i'm the guy who you know i'm the songwriter i'm the i'm the person that's been orchestrating so much of it and then and then he kills the guy like like immediately you know so you're like what's going on (laughs) and it's just sort of like there's a cruelty to what the songwriter is doing because it doesn't mean anything to him Right. He's been fucking everyone's lives and manipulating everybody through his work. But he's just doing it as a gig. Like, it doesn't... 
it's meaningless to him. He's just an old, bitter man who's like maybe trapped by his riches or something, you know, like he seems like he's been up in that house waiting for someone to show up so he could fuck with them. Right, right. Well, this is something that I've, especially listening to your podcast that I've been thinking about a lot is that this, all of the, the men who are in on the conspiracy, you know, yes, like don't yes. seem particularly enlightened at all. They're like, no, they're like old boys, you know, like they're, they're, yeah. they're immature. You know, he just wants yeah. the, the song, the songwriter just wants to get rich, you know, that's why he's uh-huh. writing songs. And he's like, well, who told you to write the songs? He's like, I don't care. Like, cause he doesn't, he doesn't know because right. he doesn't care, you know, like, he's just like, right. Whatever. I don't care. I just wanted, I wanted a paycheck, you know? And I'm yeah. like, uh, he's just a, he's doing it because he can. Yeah, yeah. And he's obsessed with material things. You can tell he's, he's got this giant yeah. mansion. It's full of yeah. shit, you know. Uh, and then the and then creepy. You're cre- you, I think you dubbed him creepy Jesus. Creepy Jesus. Creepy Jesus yeah. At the end is like, he's in on it, but he's gonna be buried with the. You know, this is the big plot of the movie. Is they're burying the rich guys are getting buried with the women, and they're gonna ascend to heaven. But he's like. He's a total pervo, and he just wants to, you know, have sex with chicks, you know, and yeah, and uh, he wants to get laid and eat and watch TV. Right, right. So it's like, it's like the this idea that like there's all this giant coded, you know, underbelly to the world, and mm-hmm. you think it would lead you to some sort of like deep secret of life, but all the people who are yeah. actually authoring, uh, authoring the experience are just uh, the most lost, most immature. Uh, uh, most bitter uh, people in the movie, you know? Yeah, it's like they're putting everybody through their nonsense, but it's just an elaborate distraction so that people don't notice what they're really up to and how, and what they're up to is sort of shallow. Super, it's the definition of shallow, right? It's like the most (laughs) shallow thing that you could ever do, like to, and yeah, you're right. They're, They're like somehow involving everyone in it so either you know overtly like the women or subconsciously like everyone else like society and all of the the billboards and yeah. stuff like that well i just love the idea that they're communicating with each other through the media right right you know what i mean as if like they would like you could just call somebody right but instead they choose to manipulate the public <laughs> on a whim <laughs> just to pass on a message to somebody. Right, right. You know, so it's like this, they're like gods in a way. They're just toying with society and they're careless. But none of them have agendas that seem to lead to anything. Right, right. Yeah. You know, so it makes it, it makes all of life completely pointless because you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of the main character or even maybe some of the women in the show, in the movie. You know, and that they all have aspirations and they're trying to figure out the world and find their place in it and decode it and all that. And they're caught up in these mazes, you know, that they haven't designed. But the main character seems to get to the end of the maze and it shows like that it, that's, it's a big fat goose egg. It's a nothing. It's like the wizard, essentially it is sort of like the Wizard of Oz, right? right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that, and him going up to the songwriter's mansion is it, uh, as like we figured out in episode 13 with, uh, with with Matt Kalman, that it's essentially a quote, that that image of him walking towards the songwriter's mansion is a quote of uh, 
the four people walking towards the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize that. Yeah, one. they're quoting that image. That's so cool. So it's a, it's a, it's yeah. almost, is it like framed, almost framed exactly or? or yeah, totally. That's awesome. It totally is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really is. So, it, and, and, and so then it kind of implies that the songwriter is like the Wizard of Oz. Right. So that he's, it's just a big put on. Right. But, well, and then the, I think the reason why that scene stuck out to me was that, you know, they, in the Wizard of Oz, that's the end. But this, that scene in <laughs> Under the Silver Lake is solidly in the middle of the movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like three quarters in. <laughs> Maybe a little less, right? Uh-huh. And then his life just keeps on going <laughs> crazier and crazier from there, just you know? Down the like, rabbit hole, and yeah. The funny thing is, is that there's barely any real repercussion for him murdering that guy. Right, right. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, did someone want him to do that? It almost feels like killing the king to become the king kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Because the, the songwriter, it's implied that the songwriter's immortal, or he's at least hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he supposedly has written Ode to Joy, right. which I think is done by Frederick Schiller in like the 1700s or something. Right. And um, He looks pretty old, that's for sure. Yeah, he definitely is made up to look old. So it's implied that he's sort of an immortal. Mm-hmm. He's immortal, but he's not really... What's he doing with his life? So in a way, you kind of get this impression like maybe he's waiting for someone to come and kill him. Right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, I get that feeling. I'm not sure I understand why why he would want... He would, why he would do that, be doing that. Because, I mean, he's probably recognized that his life is completely meaningless and everything <laughs> that he's doing is totally lame. It's not going to get any better than that. Right. He's got everything and it's meaningless. Right. He's a bitter old man. But the, the reason... One of the reasons I say that is because just before Sam crushes his head with the guitar, the expression on his face is very peaceful. Really? Yeah, it's weird. That's interesting. Check it out next time you see it. It's a very odd... I mean, because... However they did it, they did it really well so that it goes from his face there to what must be a dummy uh-huh. that he's crushing. Oh, but you it's know. seamless and it's all in the same shot. It's seamless. Yeah. And so the moment before the guitar hits his head, it's just his face looking very calm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's odd. Yeah. So I kind of have this feeling like he's been waiting for someone to figure out the songs <laughs> so and come and find him and kill him. That's awesome. Yeah, which might be why he instigates Sam and shoots at him, right. but never sh- actually hits him. Right. And I love like him playing the piano with the gun because that feels like a very old rock and roller kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like having a pistol by your piano feels like like maybe like Jerry Lee Lewis would have been doing that or something. <laughs> that old kind of thing where you get the feeling like Chuck Berry Barry would have like pulled a knife on somebody because they're playing at, like, they're backstage. playing some seedy establishments right yeah <laughs> exactly yeah that whole like old rock and roll thing where you you're it's like the wild west really yeah yeah that's awesome Isis, with the help of Nephthys, roamed the lands in search of the missing pieces of her murdered king. She gathered the body parts of Osiris, but could not find his penis, which had been thrown into the Nile and eaten by a fish. 
Chapter 4, The Cult of Isis. Isis reassembled Osiris' body and brought him back to the land of the living. Then she turned herself into a kite and flew around him, drawing his seed out and into herself, becoming pregnant with Horus. Osiris was alive, but now incomplete, so he could no longer rule the land of the living. He withdrew into the afterlife and became the lord and judge of the dead. In an alternate version of this story, Isis fabricated a golden phallus and impregnated herself with Horus. Horus became the first man-god, also known as the first pharaoh of Egypt. All pharaohs thereafter were considered to be reincarnations of Horus. The mystery religion that evolved around the death and rebirth of Osiris was known as the Cult of Isis. The mysteries recounted the life, death, mummification, resurrection, and ascension of Osiris. Two ceremonies, the fall of the Nile, which represented Osiris's death, and the raising of the Jed Pillar, which represented Osiris's rebirth, were associated with the seasons and the rising and falling of the Nile River. Dramas were enacted about Osiris's life. A golden statue of Osiris was brought forth from the inner sanctum of the temple, and people lavished gifts upon it. The statue was placed in public for all to see. Emergence of the statue represented Osiris's return from the dead. The worship of Osiris, which occurred across the entirety of Egypt, eventually transformed into the worship of Isis, who became considered to be the queen of heaven and creator of the universe. This cult of Isis grew into ancient Greece, Phoenicia, and Rome, spreading throughout the Roman Empire. The cult of Isis was the last ancient religion to survive after the birth of Christianity, and many of its influences and symbols can be seen in the Christian traditions to this day. As for Osiris, if you travel 30 meters underground into the Osiris shaft, between the Sphinx and the Pyramid of Khafra, you'll find an empty stone sarcophagus. It is believed to be the casket of Osiris. Yeah, is there a, so anything else in the movie that really struck you? Well, I think like the the last thing that I've been thinking about a lot is this um, kind of you were touching on a little bit is like this idea of like Hollywood stars. You know, it's in L.A. and Hollywood yeah. is L.A. And, and Hollywood stars are like the god are like present day gods. You know, like that mm-hmm. that sort of theme. And it's um, I don't know. I think last the last episode you were talking about how. Sam and Sarah are the two main characters uh, that the story revolves yeah. around, and Sam Sam Sarah is also a concept yeah. of rebirth and yeah. cyclicality of all life, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, so it's but it's also sort of the idea of like suffering in life as well until you figure it out. Right. Right. But it will don't, the cycle of suffering. It, it sort of implies that like their journey is a replaying of events that has happened before, right? And that yeah. the old gods and the Greek and Egyptian gods that, you know, are mm-hmm. being referenced were also just like like Hollywood people. They were just, or like the creepy Jesus and the, and the songwriter. 
just like flawed normal humans and not gods at all you know I don't know and then the, we were just talking about how like those peep guys like aren't pr- actually particularly enlightened and that the right the code the, the cryptography you know is sort of like it's like it's just like a red herring you know or what, what were you called did you, you you said it was like a, a, a Wizard of Oz reference like it's all you think we live in this world where life is like sort of meaningless and then you find these codes and you're like oh there is some meaning behind life and you look into the codes and then you find out that beneath the code is something even more meaningless than than, <laughs> than, what, you, than what you had before you know well but but the codes themselves are the movie itself is I call it it's laced with meaning like every bit of it has like a deeper symbol symbolic meaning right. to it so right. um, it's really a fascinating film in that it's presenting these people who seem to be living these aimless, meaningless lives, but then it's actually a story that is rife with symbolism from its wall-to-wall symbols, so it's it's just uh, overflowing with meaning in the same way that uh, the, the river was overflowing with too many salmon, you know what right. I mean? It's almost too much, it's laced with almost too much meaning as I've dug into it. Um, well, and they ha- didn't they hire they hired a cryptology consultant, yeah, right? Who's a guy yeah, who yeah. helped decipher some Masonic yeah. book from Germany in the 1600s yeah, or something like that, right? Yeah. Do you remember his name? I can't remember right now. Right. I mean, th- that those kind of details, you know, it's been like a half a year since I've studied that aspect of right, it. Right, right. So I I've forgotten more than I've learned. Do you remember the book that or the language they deciphered though? Well, there's a few different ciphers in there. There's a Zodiac cipher, which has to do with the Zodiac killer. Uh-huh. Well, this, I was reading, the guy that they hired as the consultant was the only person who was able to decipher this one book. That, yeah. Um, I can't remember what it is, but I think he has to do with that What Three Words website. Right. I think he might have been the guy who designed that site, where you punch in three words on a map and it shows you a place. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he knew how to code a map that way and that's utilized in the movie right and referenced in the movie right. so um but i can't remember the specific cipher that you're talking about it's been so long since i've looked at that information i can't right. well but remember exactly what that cipher was it was a cipher for like a masonic like sure in that sort of masonic yeah. it was like a german yeah 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 right right and there's this super strong, like, Masonic, like, eyes wide shut oh, yeah. aren't undercurrent in the whole movie yeah. because the rich, rich men are burying themselves, you know, with the women, you know, uh, yeah. uh, in order to achieve enlightenment, you know? And um, yeah. uh, and we talked about how those guys, like, aren't particularly enlightened, though, when we, when we meet them. And I don't know, it's like Sam's journey seems like he's, like, trying to find meaning in life and what it by the end, he sort of realizes that the meaning in his life has actually been like human connection, like connection that he had with, he has with Sarah, or the connection mm-hmm. that he has with his ex-girlfriend, you know, that he's like mm-hmm. carrying around dog biscuits in his pocket for and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And so I've been trying to like understand like some of the more macro themes of the, of the movie. Well, I'm really interested in the in the sort of micro, all the code stuff and stuff like that. But I feel like I mm-hmm. I just need someone else to figure that out and explain it to me because I don't, <laughs> it's like so the code, complicated. The, the actual <laughs> cipher stuff, a lot of that is 
that's not what I lean towards. You know, I would probably find some of that just sort of frustrating. I think there's a bit that I figured out, but what I'm really good at is being able to see the mythological symbolism in the scenes. And so like I was able to figure out that um, the first time he meets the homeless king and he goes underground and he goes through those tunnels and then he comes up through what looks like one of the shafts in the Great Pyramid and comes out into the uh, into the, the, the cooler, right. the milk cooler right. and drinks milk. And there's one point where he walks by this group of people singing happy birthday. And so I was able to figure out that he's being reborn. Right in that moment, in that scene, you know? So I was able, I'm, I'm, I'm good at taking those kind of visual cues and uh, visual symbolic ideas that the more mythological or uh, visually based symbols and decode them, like the sequences, I'm able to decode the sequences. If you were to give me like a word letter code, I kind of get, I fall off. That's where I fall off. That's what I'm not as interested in. Right. But. Andy put it in a nice way, whereas like the ciphers and the letter number codes are like the gateway into thinking that there are codes in the movie. Mm -hmm. And then if you think like that, then you might start to realize if you can see the movie mythologically like I could, that there are these larger thematic mythological codes going on from scene to scene. Right, right. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think like you've been really like it's been really entertaining listening to you like like draw draw conclusions uh pull out the you know dust off all the, the weird mythology books and like and like try and find connections in the movie and stuff like that and um and like the like the, all of the stuff around the horus which is like i feel like you're really like we're like taking back the world horror you know in this in this oh, podcast yeah. you know we're like the hor the Horus is like actually like a was a positive thing in the past yeah. that's been sort of dismerged in the present day and it's so so embedded in our language and nobody even knows about it you know one of the things that is really helpful with understanding all that kind of stuff is studying language and trying to find the I can't remember what the name of the if it's etymology mm -hmm. but it's like the study of language itself and so you see where where words come from and how they transform over time and that so when when you start to pay attention to that kind of stuff then you start to ask the question well what is a whore right. like where does that word come right. from and then you know you can go oh so these are what that really is is pointing towards these sacred priestesses of the temple of Horus way 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 back in Egypt you know and so they had a sacred job it wasn't the, and and that Really what happened is that, and this is something that I, I'm kind of going to talk about during this episode, I'll be like peppering in little bits of information throughout the entire episode. I want to try like a different format on this episode. But essentially I think what this movie is pointing towards is a war that's been going on for a long time between a hermeticist, the group of hermeticists who speak a symbolic language of resurrection that dates all the way back to ancient Egypt. Uh, what's a hermeticist? I guess that probably comes from Hermes, who is like the Greek name for Thoth, who was, you know what? Wow, I'm actually on the page in my notebook about Thoth. But Thoth was a ancient Egyptian god 
Uh, I think maybe he's an ibis-headed god. He created writing, and uh, supposedly he initiated Isis into the magic of reincarnation. Thoth later becomes Hermes in Greece, and he kind of becomes like Hermes Trismegistus. And so there's a whole like book of Thoth that reveals all these sort of like spiritual truths about reality, about humans' place in the world and the spiritual reality of our existence. And that becomes this sort of like a school of Hermeticism that became very popular in the early Renaissance. So the Egyptians kind of spoke in this symbolic language of the hieroglyphs. And each hieroglyph implied like a whole, in a simple way, you could say like a hieroglyph was an entire sentence. Uh huh. Uh huh. But so each picture is a symbol, and the symbol implies a whole understanding. So, you know, you could say like, you could have a picture of an eye, and the eye implies like the eye of Horus and the third eye inside of the head, and. And so that implies inner sight, and that implies like sight into another realm, and you know, so like a single symbol implies like an entire—it's like an uh, idea, an entire paragraph of information. Right. More, it's more like an idea than a than a word. It sounds like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, an entire concept, and so that was their language. That was their written language. Was a symbolic language that had these rich implications to it. And so they spoke about things on different levels, and especially spiritually in this, this symbolic nature. And that's how they coded the pyramids and other temples and stuff like that. So in order to understand them, you have to be able to think in like a greater idea of pictures, uh-huh. which funnels nicely into this movie because that's what this movie is doing: is coding through sequences and pictures, and the pictures and the sequences imply these larger concepts and stories, stuff like that. So there's so much information this movie is able to give through a symbolic language. It can tell so much of a broader story that way. And so the Egyptian mystery schools sort of transformed into the Greek and Roman mystery schools, but then they all had to go underground because of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And Christianity is essentially what the Roman Empire turned into when it found like it wasn't able to control the population just through their normal means. Right. They kind of subverted themselves into Christianity since Christianity was was, you know, really catching on with people. So they adopted Christianity and then they started to rule through Christianity, but because they are this Saturnian society, like uh, uh, ancient Rome is essentially called Saturnia, uh-huh. and the idea with Saturn or Satan is that it's all about rules and laws and all that kind of stuff and control. Uh-huh. So they're this hierarchical society that wants to control people. They're an empire and they want to control everything. So the Hermetic groups had to go underground, just like some of the Greek and the Roman and the Egyptian mystery schools. It's this entire school of spiritual knowledge and traditions that have to keep on becoming hidden because there are these other groups that want to control hierarchically society, and they want to have top-down rule over other people. So that they have the only access to God, instead of the individual having an access to God, or as t- to the self as God. 
So what happens is, is that the hermetic studies, which are sort of like the sort of like the Renaissance or pre-Renaissance into the Renaissance sciences that are derived from ancient Egypt and up through until then, have to go underground once the once the Catholic Church starts like killing all the witches and the hermeticists and the magicians and all that stuff. And a lot of those people are essentially using the natural sciences. They're trying to stomp them all out so it all goes underground again and it transforms into things like the Masonic groups. Right. And eventually those Masonic groups, which speak entirely in all this symbolic language again, they always have to do that because it's a way of conveying all this information simply through these images, but also it's a way of hiding and obscuring information and obscuring it from the hierarchical power system. And that eventually turns into the United States. The people who found the United States are all Masons. And they're speaking this Masonic language that dates back to ancient Egypt. And that's why you get like the eye and the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill and the obelisk, like the, the Washington Monument, which is an obelisk that dates back to the first obelisk from Heliopolis, which is like the first city in ancient Egypt. So essentially what this movie kind of points to is this idea of this war between the Hermeticists, the Masons, and the Roman Empire. That's been going on in one way or another for throughout the centuries. Oh man, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. it's fucking wild. wild. And so and so the whole idea of the mystery schools exist because you have these, this personal experience where you either know yourself as God or you have the gnosis of God, which is the direct experience with God. And the church doesn't want that. And the church is really the Roman Empire, which is the control system. Right. They want to control God. They want to have the hierarchy and the, and the domination. They want to, you know, the, they want the Pope to be the only voice of Jesus on earth. And Right. Well, they're using religion to control things too, right? Correct. Yeah, because they're they're because they couldn't control what if Jesus was real or not. Like they couldn't control that he caught on like wildfire. Right. right. And so instead they subsume it and invert it and try to make it hierarchical, so that they have all the they're the only uh, they're the faucet where you turn on the faucet for God. And you have to go to <laughs> you have to go to the church and they they control the water. Right. Right. They got the faucet. Yeah. So instead, you got these mystery school religions and that most likely what was happening with these mystery school religions is that they were using different forms of hallucinogens to enhance the experience of, okay, so I'm getting at this in a roundabout way, but this is great because we just sort of got to it. Uh -huh. But essentially... I've been reading this book. I've been listening to the book, actually. It's called The Immortality Key. It's by this guy named Brian Murescu. Uh -huh. Or Murescu, something like that. And essentially, he set out to prove that the uh, ancient Greek and Roman mystery schools, the cult of Diana, or the triple goddess, which is the moon goddess cults, the maid, the mother, and the crone, Persephone, Demeter, and Hecate, which are the three phases of the moon, so they're the moon goddess cult. Uh -huh. That cult in Greece, and then the Dionysian cult in Greece, and the Bacchic cult in Rome, which is just Dionysus. Another name for Dionysus in Rome is, ba is Bacchus, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. So these mystery school traditions were happening, 
And essentially what they were doing was in ancient Greece, according to this guy's book and his research, he did all this crazy research to figure this out. But essentially he was able to track down in ancient Greece with the moon goddess cult, they were brewing beer, okay? Mm-hmm. And there is this mold that would grow on the, on the barley mm-hmm. called ergot. And ergot is one of the things that Albert Hoffman was studying in order to invent LSD. Oh, interesting. And so ergot is this mold that grows on the barley and it's a poison essentially. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's sort of a mushroom. I don't know. What's another word for a mushroom? Fungus. A fungus. There you go. It's a fungus that grows on the barley and you know, it's probably poisonous, but like all like powerful hallucinogens, there's a, there's a prescribed amount that you take that poisons you just right. Right. And then you experience a an ego death. And so um, they think with the moon goddess cults, they were using this ergot-laced beer and they would have these ceremonies where it would probably start above ground and then eventually it would go into a temple underground and you'd drink the beer and you'd have these profound hallucinations and you'd meet the goddess underground. And then once the hallucination was done, you'd come back to the surface again. And so the, th- the triple goddess symbolizes before you die, Persephone. And Persephone is the, the maiden goddess that gets kidnapped by Hades and taken into the, under- into the underworld. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Who, and she has to live there part of the year. And that symbolizes the winter, essentially. But, um, yeah, so I guess it's like Persephone and then you're underground and that's probably, you're probably uh, Demeter at that point. Or you meet with Demeter underground and that's the phase of being dead underground. And then you're reborn after your hallucinogenic experience and come back to the surface and now that's Hecate and that's the crone goddess. So that's the life after you've died. So there's this phrase that is, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Mm. So essentially, this moon goddess cult was performing these rituals where people would prepare themselves for months and they would only do this once in their life and then they would do this, these ceremonies that would last a couple weeks. And at some point they'd go underground, they'd have the hallucinogen, the ergot-laced beer, they'd have their encounter with the goddess, and they would have an ego death, or a, a, a essentially it's like being buried alive. They have like a death experience underground where you meet the a goddess in the afterlife, and then you come back from that ego death and you're transformed and then you're reborn into the into the living world again. And you come back and you live your life and you've been transformed by this experience. So you've had a gnosis, you've had a personal experience with the god or the goddess. Also with Dionysus, what they think with ancient Greece and ancient Rome is that Dionysus or Bacchus, they would have a mushroom-laced wine. Nice. Yeah, so because back in the day when they would make wine, they would make all different kinds of wine. So it's, it's kind of like what we have now with wine and beer, the way they brew all these different kinds right. of beers and wines right. now. Right, like this specialty coffee beers. And yeah, that's what they were doing way back then. Uh-huh. And so they would have these different kinds of wines that they create. 
And um, this guy, Brian Muresco, was able to find this piece of art that depicts... He was able to find this vase that depicted the priestesses of Dionysus. Uh, they have a specific name. They're called like the Maenads or something like that. Uh-huh. So they're sort of like the Horai, the priestesses of Horus. Like Dionysus, like Horus or uh, the triple goddess, they have their churches, quote unquote, are run, their temples are run by priestesses. And the priestesses know how to brew the beer, the beer or they know how to create the special wine. Nice. They are witches, essentially. That's where witch, the whole idea of witchcraft uh-huh. comes from. It's They're in touch with all this natural medicine, so they're able to take herbs and fungi and what have you and brew different things with them and create medicines or um, create inebriants or, you know, different kinds of stuff like that, potions that create different effects in the consciousness. And the people who knew how to do that were the women, so they were always... So these uh, mystery schools were always run by women. And so for Dionysus, these priestesses would create potentially a mushroom-laced wine that would have the same effect, and you'd have that same sort of ceremony where you go underground and you drink the wine, and you're able to commune with the dead. And so so he was able to find out about this farmhouse in this town called Villa Vesuvia. Uh-huh which was on the outskirts of Pompeii. Uh And this town was totally preserved from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Uh Okay, this farmhouse was preserved. And now the Villa Vesuvia, which is very interesting, is fairly close to where our family is from in Avellino. Nice, interesting. Yeah, it's not that far away. And that area is where there's a huge tradition of witches coming together in ancient Rome. Uh doing their witchcraft stuff, you know, which is they know how to brew all these different concoctions, you know, that are used as medicines or inebriants or hallucinogens or what have you. And what they're able to find in this town called Villa Vesuvia on the outskirts of Pompeii, which was preserved because of the, was covered by the eruption of Pompeii, I mean, of Mount Vesuvius, they found this farmhouse. They excavated it in the late 90s or the mid 90s or something, and they were able, it was preserved so well, they were able to date it back to AD 79, okay? And in this farmhouse, they found a threshing floor, a wine press, a wine cellar, and seven large vessels with all this organic deposit inside of the vessels, preserved in the vessels. Uh-huh. And they were able to do an, an analysis on all the organic material inside of these vessels. And they're able to find that find out that they were creating these concoctions with of wine, but the wine was laced with opium and cannabis and two different kinds of nightshades, white henbone and black nightshade, and both of those things are hallucinogens. And they're also laced with lizards. And uh, there's something that I just heard where it was like, one guy says like, you brew a lizard in oil and you're able to see God that way. That's crazy. And they're also, so they've got like the bones of lizards in these concoctions. There's that, there's like a toad, hallucinogenic toad right now. And I was just about to say that it also has the remnants of frogs and toads in these concoctions as well. So it is proof that these women were brewing these special wine concoctions with the hallucinogens in it, laced with opium, cannabis, mushrooms, nightshades, lizards, frogs, and toads. Mm -hmm. And they would create, it would create different effects. I mean, essentially like this one farm 
that's what this farm did. It wasn't like they grew like, you know, like corn or something. They grew and brewed special hallucinogenic wines that were then used in these ceremonies that happened all over the place. So this guy essentially, through his book, he was able to prove that in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, the piece of the mysteries that's missing, because you're not supposed to talk about what happens in the mystery schools, what you experience and all that, you're not supposed to talk about them, that's why they're mysteries. The special element to the mystery schools is most likely these hallucinogenic brews. for episode 19 of the Post Relevant Podcast, The King's Chamber Part 2. Stay tuned, King's Chamber Part 3, coming up as soon as possible. Very special thanks to Brother Mark Restaino for his amazing conversation. Part 2 of our conversation will be in The King's Chamber Part 3. If you'd like to learn more about Mark, you can find him at Mark Restaino on Instagram. Also thanks and a special participation prize goes to returning champion Andy Restaino for his participation in today's episode. You can find out more about Andy if you go to his website, andyrestaino.com. Also, I just wanted to shout out the songwriter Holizna CC0 for all his amazing music that I've used all over this episode. You can find his music at freemusicarchive.org If you'd like to see a smorgasbord of samples of my acting, art, and music, you can see it all at my website, thesearedreams.com You can also contact me at Phil Restino on Instagram and Facebook. And if you go over to my Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Phil Restino, you can see posters, art, videos, lyrics, and more to complete the full 5D experience of the Post Relevant Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash post relevant. And remember, if you're going to watch an hour-long parade of naked bike riders, make sure you have a live band playing music out on the street while it's happening. Thanks for listening. More to come on the post-relevant.